is the granddaughter of Kenneth Arnold, and she has taken on the role of keeping his memory and experiences alive. And for those of you who may not know, Kenneth Arnold played a very important role in the modern UFO era. On June 24, 1947, Kenneth Arnold saw nine silvery objects in the sky while flying alone in his private plane. This happened near Mount Rainier in Washington State. And although this wasn't the first sighting of its kind, it was the one that exploded onto the national stage, ushering in the flying saucer craze that forever changed our popular consciousness. Kenneth Arnold died in 1984 at the age of 68. His daughter, Kim Arnold, has spoken publicly about her father, and she has described the difficulties that his sightings created in his life and in their family's life. Presently, Chanel has taken over the role of the family spokesperson to keep her grandfather's memory alive. In our conversation, Chanel and I jump around a little bit, and we talk about some details that might be hard to follow, but... At the end of the formal interview, I will be adding an audio reading titled Kenneth Arnold and the Dawn of the Modern UFO Era. This is a full chapter, read by me, from the audiobook Stories from the Messengers. It runs about 20 minutes long, and it should clarify all the details in our conversation. This interview was recorded on Friday, October 23, 2020. Please enjoy. Chanel, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Oh, no problem. I enjoy sharing experiences and thoughts. <laughs> Great, good. And I enjoy trying to trying to get those out to people so so everyone can experience them too. Your grandfather mm -hmm. was a reluctant celebrity and and how has that been for your family, the role he played in UFO history? My aunts and mother have been very disheartened by the whole community. Just like, for example, my grandfather lost the copyright to his book. He was so burnt out at the end of his life from being bothered so much, I guess. He felt like he had to be a recluse because of all the letters and correspondence he got from all over the world. And my grandmother at one point just threw away a bunch of letters and I dread that, but they were just overwhelmed with so many people sharing their experiences because no one else would listen to them. And my grandfather had this, he had more than one UFO experience and knew that it was something unreal, nothing that was nuts and bolts like he was used to. Like like his own airplane, like nothing like his own airplane or a yeah. military airplane. Okay. Yeah. I just know that he was dumbfounded by how fast they went. He clocked it at like 1,300 miles per hour and felt like he was doing his math wrong. And then he clocked him at going 1,700 miles per hour. And uh, he thought it was like some new military uh, secret weapon. You know, he didn't know what they were. And after he reported them, I know that... Uh, he finally realized that he was into something much greater than he had expected in the beginning. He felt like it was his duty as a pilot to report what he saw, but then he regretted it. But he was chosen, I think. In that part of time, the uh, bombs had gone off in Nagasaki and Hiroshima two years before. And I think that is why all this activity happened when they started... Uh, even uh, testing nuclear bombs, it seemed like, you know, the phenomenon was forgotten about. And then my grandfather was the one to bring it back and start the modern UFO era, even though, as history shows, we've been experiencing UFOs and flying saucers all throughout time of us being here. <laughs> yeah. So here, let me back up yeah. one. You said one thing that I that's on my list to ask you jumped right to the deepest uh -huh. waters. You said that he felt chosen. Oh, oh, well, see, I think that's more of my mother speaking that he was the right person at the time to report what he saw because he was an honest pilot. 
he definitely was an experienced pilot and he um, knew that part of being a pilot was to report anything that you'd seen. He was part of search and rescue for uh, the Idaho Posse and uh, he also flew prisoners up north to the prison. And so he, he had all the credentials to back up his honesty. And with his experience that he had, it was so unbelievable that he just he felt like it was his duty to share what he experienced, but it opened Pandora's box. And uh, so many other people finally felt like they weren't crazy anymore. Yeah. Because uh, I know I've, I've read a book, um, uh, Three Minutes in June by Bruce McAbee, and he said, and that's, I didn't know, but in that summer, People were seeing all sorts of things, but nothing was taken seriously until my grandfather's sighting. And then even Roswell kind of disappeared two weeks after his sighting, Roswell happened, and that even disappeared in the news when they said it was a weather balloon. Yeah, they they pulled out the weather balloon story. And then your father, being a very trustworthy man, and then by all accounts, that's like the core of his story in a way, that he is such a credible Mm man. And Now, was your grandfather a rancher? I mean, I know he had Um, a... Did he... he just had a lot of animals. <laughs> he, he he sold fire equipment, and he flew into remote areas around the Pacific Northwest. But he had a love for animals, which is passed down to myself and my daughters. We love animals, and my family has always been into having animals as, as uh, pets and whatnot. Well, the reason I but, asked uh, that, because, I mean, there's certainly pictures of him with a cowboy hat uh, that show up. And um, I mean, just that uh, the sort of Western man, yeah. you know, was was yeah. like the icon. That was John Wayne, essentially. That was the that's our national uh-huh. identity was to have someone like Kenneth Arnold out there. And and uh, just so folks know, I've talked about this plenty, but I lived in Idaho. I lived on the other side of the state. Uh, your grandfather was from Boise on the west side. Mm-hmm. I was on the east side of the state um, near the Tetons and the Wyoming border. But there's a there's a character type that your grandfather fits and there's you can just go online and there's all kinds of videos of him being interviewed and talk shows and documentaries where he's you know talking to the camera and you know he was out there being you know videotaped and filmed throughout much of his time you know telling his story and uh like i've met men like that out west and that there's a there's a there's a type and i really recognize it in him so Mm -hmm. i you know he's a yes by all accounts a very trustworthy guy Mm. They put him as a character in Twin Peaks <laughs> in their book. Oh, that's right. That, that showed up in one of the books. Yeah. 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 He showed up in Twin Peaks by Mark Frost. And that kind of blew me away. I'm like, wow, my grandfather is going to be like remembered all throughout time from <laughs> being in books and being written about, you know, just it's a mind boggler. And, you know, what, what I'm so sad about is how, um, I'm trying to think of the right word. At, he was so burnt out at the end of his life that, like, he let the copyright of his coming out of the saucers go. Um, and uh, he did, like, one interview with an English uh, reporting agency from England, and he didn't like how they put his story in the light because he just wanted his belief passed on that he believed there a connection between the living and the dead. And that's the only thing that made sense to him at the end of his life. Mm-hmm. But um, oh, okay. Let's let's hear a little bit about that because that's a that's a bold statement even now. Oh yeah, no. I mean, our family beliefs from his beliefs were that they they come from another dimension. And growing up, my realization is they were they if that's what he believed in, they have to be misrepresented angels or. They're the angels that everybody saw in the Bible, but they didn't know how to explain what they were seeing. Kind of like, sure, yeah. Um, to me, that's like my realization growing up in the family I grew up is that they they have to be coming from where we go to when we die. And uh, he believed they're more like alive almost, and I think it's just the way they could manipulate reality with whatever technology they had. Um, I have like also a belief that that uh, being by volcanoes, those are portals to like uh, other dimensions because he always had sightings like by Mount Shasta. He had a sighting of flying saucers in his um, airplane. I believe Baker 
Baker City, Oregon. He saw he saw some not too long after his first sighting. He saw him like I think seven times in his life, but he didn't share his experiences after his first one because he knew what a you know ruckus it started with everyone. You know the frenzy of it. Oh, oh yeah. A lot of people I have talked with um, have basically said like I wish I never told anyone. I wish I had just shut up. So, yeah. um, hey, so this is, I'm just going to read a little thing here from, from my book. And this is a, just a short little thing where he talks about that they looked like living organisms. He had a UFO sighting in 1952, and this was again from his plane. And he saw two distinct craft flying below him. And then one of these was, which he said, this is a quote, was as solid as a Chevrolet. And the other one was semi-transparent, like a jellyfish. And he could, he said he could actually look down from his plane, the this jellyfish was below him, and he could see the pine trees on the ground through the center of this jellyfish-like object. Mm-hmm. And here's what he said in Look Magazine in the 1950s. He said, The impression I had after observing those strange objects a second time was that they were something alive rather than machines, a living organism of some type that apparently had the ability to change its density similar to fish that are found in our oceans without losing their apparent identity. That's pretty trippy. That's like science fiction stuff he's describing. That is not a metal spaceship that would clang if you threw a rock at it, you know? Yeah. And um, I I realized he believed all that, and that even like kind of blows me away with like just thoughts of, um, maybe it could manipulate itself with some cloaking device to make it see through because like that technology I think we're even close to grasping is like invisibility or being looked through. And it's always hard for people. I mean, this all happened in the fifties to explain what they're seeing because it's so unbelievable and not known to any, you know, very many people. But, um, you know, it just, it always just blew his mind because he, he realized that he opened up a huge, uh, he started the UFO era of the modern century, I guess. Yeah. Because uh, after his sighting, everybody came forth. And one of his greatest friends was Captain E.J. Smith, who saw nine UFOs in Emmett, Idaho, and he was part of the Maury Island incident as well. But uh, my grandfather, really wanted to meet him because he saw something that my grandfather had also witnessed. And my grandfather felt like he needed uh, other people that had had shared his experience. So he was believed because it's still so unbelievable to this day, unless you've had a UFO experience yourself, which I have. So I, you know, I, I truly am a believer and I grew up in a paranormal family, you know, how could I not believe? Okay, here, so we got two things you just put right there on the table, and these are on my list of things to ask, both the paranormal family and your own sighting. But before we do that, we have to take our very first commercial break. For free listeners, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen with my guest, Chanel Chance, and we are talking about her grandfather, Kenneth Arnold. And just before the break, you dropped two topics that I want to cover. One was your own UFO sighting. We talked briefly on the phone a couple days ago, and you shared a little bit about that then, but I would love to have you tell that for for me again and, and the audience. Um, I ended up living in the Portland, Oregon area, and um, it was by a volcano, Mount Hood, which I always thought was just awesome because I grew up in Boise where we didn't have volcanoes, even though we were close to them. But um, I had had my first daughter in early 2000, the year, and um, my first job was delivering newspapers. And it was like, you know, four to five in the morning, I had to run around in the dark and fight possums to deliver newspapers. And the last night I worked, I was listening to Art Bell this is, you know, the year 2000 when he was still alive and he was doing a coast-to-coast show. And I noticed a huge blue and green ship that was hovering, like, probably two football fields away from me. And I just stood there and stared at it. And I almost felt like 
I had to go, you know, like it was so threatening that it probably knew that I saw it. That's kind of how I felt about it. Like I needed to quit my route as quick as I could and get out of there. And that's what I did. But, um, I saw uh, another UFO with my mother when she came to visit once. Oh, here, let's just, but, let's just stick with that story for just a second. How, how big would you estimate the size of that? It was, it was huge. It was like hovering over a neighborhood that was down further. And, you know, it was, it was by a volcano. And that's like my, our family believes that like these, these always appear near like volcanoes, it seems like. And so that's kind of how I felt like maybe it was, uh, trans-dimensional you know mm -hmm. and it had a consciousness that i felt i could feel and i it just it overwhelmed me and i quit that job that night and i i think i even did tell him i i saw a ufo i can't do this anymore i don't know maybe it's just the fact that i kept looking at my watch thinking they were going to take me and i was never going to be seen again <laughs> well they t they tend to bring people back yeah yeah, half the time I think all these missing people are, are people that have been taken by flying saucers, never to return. So, well, that's if they're missing and we don't know, it's a genuine mystery. But I have had that very same thought, though I'm very cautious mm -hmm. to go down that road of speculation because I simply don't know, you know. So now, I mean, so how big? As big as a like a semi truck? Oh my gosh, no! It was huge. It was just like a huge mothership and. I couldn't do any, you know, calculations or not. It was just the the presence of it. And um, I was so glad that I had that experience, though, because I had longed for it all my life, looking up at the sky and just wondering when it was going to be my turn to witness a flying saucer. And my mom came to visit, and this is, again, in, like, the Vancouver area, which is, like, across the bridge from Portland. And uh, that's kind of where I ended up. But we were out on the back porch and there was this orange object. And I almost wonder if it was like, I don't know, my mom just didn't believe it, what it was doing. It was like dropping stuff. And then somebody said, well, possibly you saw a flare, but it was like a ship, an orange ship. And it was like dropping something down to the earth. And it was like outside late at night, we'd woken up because my daughter had a, uh, woke up in the middle of the night. She was sleeping in the living room. But she couldn't even believe it. <laughs> My mom and we were both witnessing it. So I had like two experiences there in uh, the Portland area of Oregon. So so it was dropping stuff. Now, how far away? Just take a guess. Was it? Were you were you seeing this? Uh, it it wasn't it wasn't too far. It was just up in the sky, and it, and the stuff that was dropping was twirling down to the earth. Was it making any noise? No, with both these sightings, there was no noise. Okay, so if that was a helicopter and it was that close, do you think you would have heard it? Yeah, okay. definitely. No, it wasn't a helicopter. Okay. It was an orange, like almost an orb-like thing. Okay. And in our family, you know, we have seen orbs and, you know, orbs, I don't know, I, I take a lot of pictures in my house and they come up in pictures and I wonder if there's spirits all around me. Now, with the technology we have, you can pick up orbs in the house. Yeah. My grandfather had an orb experience when he was younger. And, um, you know, when we're taking pictures, you can see orbs, like, flying around. And it doesn't seem like dust either. You know, since the yeah. advent of the digital camera, the orbs, people are getting a lot of orbs photographs. And also, you know, you can certainly get water droplets in front of the lens and they can create an orb-like image. But I've had many mm. times where I've been with people and they say, "Take point the camera right over there in that corner. And I do it and an orb shows up. Oh, yeah. So I've been with people who feel they can see them. I certainly have. I have seen one. It's an interesting story. I won't go into it right now. But um, so here, let me just, um, I'm going to read a little bit from the, the research that I did. So uh, your grandfather saw a glowing orb as a boy of seven. And this was, uh, it was in the room, because at that point, they, they people didn't use uh, funeral homes the way we do now. So if someone in the family died, you would have them lie in state in your own house. So he saw a glowing orb as a boy of seven while his grandmother, in the room with his grandmother, while she was lying in state. And there was one more sighting. Let me just find this here. 
And this year, mother told me this, um, that shortly after the 1947 sighting, a glowing ball of light appeared in his home, and it was first seen by one of his daughters. I'm not sure if it's your mother or one of her sisters. And it floated down the hall, and your, your grandfather was so frightened that he fell to the knees and began reciting the Lord's Prayer. So what we have, in a way, is... I mean, this is what happens. There's this weird stuff that follows the UFO lore around. You know, people see a UFO, and then afterwards they'll start having orbs in the house. They'll have, uh, they'll begin to have um, psychic experiences, and uh, and this is the kind of thing that that is hand in glove with the UFO sighting. But very few people want to talk about the weirder stuff, and that's right where I'm at, boy. I want to talk about that weird stuff, and that's what I'm trying to research. I believe there's something with music. I think modern-day prophets, I mean, these are just what I've experienced, not necessarily what my grandfather believed. And I listen to all types of music, and I feel like modern-day prophets are in the music. It's almost like that crazy question, do you get special messages out of the radio, TV, or songs? And I have had synchronicities happen with certain songs related to my life, and just um, hearing about songs. Uh, I had a friend who was a minister and his name was Levon. And I almost felt like that whole song that Elton John wrote about Levon was about him. Um, mm-hmm. and, and songs like the Moody Blues sang Tuesday afternoon. My grandfather saw his uh, flying saucer on a Tuesday afternoon. And, um, okay. you know, synchronicities like that. Like, huh, I wonder if the fact that they can write down their thoughts, they could be channeling certain things, you know, and, and what great way to express it, but through song. So the issue with the music, I mean, that's, that's something I've thought about a lot. And I think it's the creative process itself. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily need to be the music, but I think the creative process can, can bring out these, these deeper truths. I mean, you know, I think writers, musicians, artists, poets, these are the people who who seem to be intertwined with this phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I will often, that's one of the questions I ask when I do an investigation, like, you know, like, are you a creative type? And most often people will say yes, and it goes well beyond just, uh, yeah. you know, playing banjo on the porch. You know, these people are, are you know, creative at a very high level. So... Um, there's a there's a researcher named Grant Cameron who I've had on this show, and he has looked into the um, the power of music and the sort of mystical, oh, prophetic truths that get woven into popular music. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like the creative artists are tuning into something beyond our um, recognition. My husband was part of the grunge scene in Seattle. And I always felt really drawn to Seattle for the whole grunge experience. And there's a show that came out about it called Hype. They credit my grandfather's sighting in the very beginning. And then my husband has a cameo shot in the movie. <laughs> was that was that before you met? It was after I met him. And he, my husband <laughs> threw me on to Coast to Coast, which was a mind blower because Sure, my grandfather was famous, but like it wasn't something I told people about in high school. Like people would have called me crazy, you know. But um, our family, you know, it's it's and it goes back to before my grandfather died. He sat me down and told me things that he thought were important because he knew that I was going to carry on his torch. I had to have. He knew that it wasn't the right time for him to even really be public throughout his whole life because there wasn't ufology like there is now. Um, Not to the same degree. Yeah. Yeah. um, So what did he, so what did he tell you? And you were just a little girl at this time. Well, okay. So he, he was going to go to the hospital in Seattle. He had colon cancer, but before he went, he sat me down and he's like, he's like, darling, please don't trust the government. Always think for yourself. And um, I was like, that's pretty deep for my grandfather to be telling me when I'm so young. You know, I was thinking of she and 
and she, <laughs> Sheena, Queen of the Jungle. I, you know, I grew up in the '80s. You know, I was just like kids. When you tell kids uh, deep secrets or anything, just kids listen. But it takes a while to like process it. And as I got older, I realized he did sit me down and tell me these things. Because then I found out like experiences he had where he had a friend in the military who had footage of a UFO, gave it to him, and he's like, Ken, you know, here's your proof. And my grandfather felt like it was his duty to solve the mystery of UFOs. So he sent it in to um, a gover- government official he knew, and they cut out the UFO and sent him back to real to real tape and said, sorry, Ken, nothing's in this film. That is That is very common. Yeah, that's something that definitely disheartened him because he always got the runaround from the government. And actually now, I mean, now look at what's, I think Harry Reid, he's, he's coming out now saying the government's hit this for forever. Okay, so let's just back up one thing here. So, so that's your sense that your grandfather felt that you would be taking on his role mm-hmm. in a way as being a... Uh, as telling his story. And I mean, you must have lots of cousins and everything like that. You're, you're, you're... Oh yeah. No, I have, I have one cousin who she just doesn't want anything to do with it. Kind of like it's my mother and myself that are outspoken about grandfather and like nobody else wants to. I have another cousin who's a professor of physics, I'm not going to mention her name, but you know, because of her job, she doesn't want her reputation to be questioned. And um, the flying saucer phenomenon still has the crazy uh, label to it, you know, even today, even though it's everywhere now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So here's how I got into looking into your grandfather. Um, I heard your mother, Kim, on a podcast, or actually it was a radio show. It was a radio show, and it was hosted by Race Hobbs, and he talked with your mother and she, at some point, she basically said, you know, we lived in a, we had a great life growing up and talked about living on a ranch and having a barn and lots of animals. And then she said, we even had a pet owl. And when she said that, I was like, my ears perked up and I'm like, I got to talk to this woman. So I, she was in Idaho and I do not think she would have answered the phone, except I was living in Idaho at the time and I had an Idaho exchange. Uh, so that's how she's like, who are you? Who is this? And I was like, uh, uh, and I, and I said, I live in Idaho and I heard you on the radio and I just wanted to ask some questions. And so we ended up having a really great conversation. And that conversation then led me to looking into your grandfather and then uh, eventually writing that chapter in my second book on your grandfather. And in that chapter, I kind of put forth the argument that your grandfather might have been an abductee. And I say that very cautiously, because oh, yeah. I say that cautiously because I can't in any way prove that. But what I can say is he has had all the things that a UFO abductee or someone who's had very close, mm-hmm. uh, uh, like a very close contact experience might tell like uh, psychic experiences and um, mm. multiple UFO sightings, as well as, uh, you know what your grandfather was? He had a, he liked number synchronicities. Mm-hmm. So like he was aware of that. And if you talk to anyone now, you go to a UFO conference, everyone's saying like, oh, like I see 1111 all the time, or it's one, two, three, four on my clock. That's a, that's a weird thing that shows up within the UFO lore. I suspect it shows up in other things too. Yeah. I, I wanted to throw in, he always had a card of the synchronicities between Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy. And one thing that was odd to him and very powerful is when he was looking for the military airplane, he had his sighting and spotted the flying saucers on June 24th. The plane wasn't found. The crash sighting was not found until July 24th. And then they had the ceremony for the deaths of the military people that have died on August 24th and he could never figure out it was in three months. It was June 24th, July 24th, and then August 24th. And he could never figure that out and it puzzled him. But I guess with John F. Kennedy and Abraham Lincoln, they did have synchronicities of certain things that happened to them both. And I can't recall exactly what it was oh yeah i mean they're both their vice presidents were both named johnson um Mm -hmm. kennedy was was shot from a warehouse and his assailant supposedly hid in a in a movie theater or in a theater and then uh 
Lincoln was shot in the theater and his assailant was was hid in a warehouse. So there's all kinds of these little things that that show up mm-hmm. in that. And I my it's so my crazy. sense is that these highly charged events, these super powerful highly charged events like the death of a president will generate these weird synchronicities. And I think like 9/11 is one of those. There's lots of very strange mm-hmm. synchronicities surrounding 9/11. And so these powerful events in history just the cosmic energy connected to that that's a that's not a very scientific way to put it just the the energy of these events somehow brings forth these synchronistic experiences mm-hmm. yeah like 11 11 like being the doorway to god um a lot of people think 11 11 is really significant yeah um yeah, it's like it's 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 what the beliefs I grew up with and everybody thought it was crazy and now there's clubs, you know, about number synchronicities and Well your grandfather I have thought it too. eleven eleven, it just cracks me up because it was never like this back in the eighties and nineties, you know. Well your grandfather go back to the nineteen fifties or the late forties and fifties, uh according to your mother like he was fascinated with these number synchronicities, yeah. oh, like yeah. like the thing that you just explained, yeah. the 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 three month staggering of those key events mm-hmm. associated with his sighting and the dead. They never found the dead. Yeah, there's no bodies recovered. That's my understanding. Yeah, there is no bodies. Mm-hmm. It's almost like Mount Rainier was a powerful portal. The area around Rainier has a ton of UFO resonance for sure. Hey, your your grandmother. Kenneth Arnold's wife, your grandmother, she was she was a psychic medium. And she channeled the masters and she got a lot of different answers in her life about uh, what the bigger picture of our lives are, like believing in previous lives she had with my grandfather. After he died, she had a conversation with him and wrote it down. Um, that kind of doesn't want to be shared, but I do have a copy of it. Well, if it's personal, um, don't share it. But but that's the kind of thing. Yeah, that's the kind of thing that a medium does. Yeah, that's a, that's a definition mm-hmm. of a psychic medium. Exactly. Hey, let's take our second and final break. For free listeners, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen with my guest, Chanel Chance, and she is the granddaughter of UFO witness Kenneth Arnold. Chanel, can you, um, can you share anything more about your grandfather? Like, he had a love for the Northwest, and I have a love for the Northwest. I love Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. I have a decal on my car that has the three states. But yeah, I definitely have a love for the gorgeous beauty of the Northwest. So let's jump back to the uh, 1947 sighting, the first sighting that he had. Now, later in his life, he talked about this. He did not talk about it at the time. And I understand exactly why it would have been would have been uh, ridiculous to talk about it. And and it would have been absolutely correct of him not to bring this up. But later in his life, he said that he felt he was in telepathic communication with those craft, the nine silvery yeah. objects he saw flying near Mount Rainier. And and that that sounds exactly like the kind of thing an abductee would say. So I am cautiously speculating that your that your grandfather may have had UFO contact and that his experience went way beyond just seeing some shiny objects flying in the sky. I I have been asked if I'm an abductee. I think that some people just don't know, honestly, because I I wouldn't be surprised. I've always admired like Travis Walton's experience and how he's he had contacts with like these beings that were uh, uh, humanoid, like like angels, and I don't know. Just our deep belief in the family is that they are the connection between the living and the dead. They're coming from the fifth dimension, I think, is where we go. And we're in the third right now. I always have to double check that because it seems odd that it skips a dimension. But Well, there's probably a dimension in between there. That would be the, you know, the answer. So maybe. Yeah. So. <laughs> and I think a lot of that is just, you know, I'm very cautious when people say, you know, third dimension, fifth dimensions. What I can say uh-huh. is that 
that my strong belief is uh, painting painting this whole phenomenon as if they are from another planet is far far too simplistic. Something much yep. stranger is going on than that. So wherever they are, wherever they're coming from, it it seems like it's from someplace much more mysterious than another planet. And we can we have thoughts about it. I mean, even dreaming, like where are we going when we're dreaming? Are we flying around having all these experiences in in our dreams, you know, realistically? Are we you know, I've heard all sorts of theories about like how our dreams take us back to like where we go to when we die. Or or it's that maybe it's that little in between dimension. That's where that's where we're dreaming, you know. That's very common for people to have co joined dreams. Mhm. Yeah, our family definitely believes in like the reincarnation uh phenomena. And uh, James Fox's movie's coming out, and my mom's in it, and that was a good time. I guess we don't have time to talk about what what a good time it was in Hollywood, but oh, go ahead, because here, let me just just last week I did an interview with James Fox, and it's up now, and that movie is out, and I'll do a little plug for it. The movie is out. James Fox directed a documentary film on UFOs called The Phenomenon. Uh, you can just Google it; it comes right up. You can listen to the interview I did last week, but that is a highly, highly recommended film. But that film would be less for people who are immersed in the subject and more for people who are looking to uh, learn about the phenomenon. And it's a great, great movie. And I think it'll push the ball forward way down the field as far as, um, you know, the public awareness of UFOs. Definitely. And, um, you know, I, I got to meet so many important people. I got to meet Dolores Cannon. Oh, when doing this, this interview with, uh, with your mother, you went to Hollywood with your mother? Yeah. Yeah, no, James, I was the one that arranged it all because my mom was so defiant. Um, she She's really hard to get to do anything. And I'm like, Mom, you're not getting any younger. Let's go and do this. And, you know, she she needed a lot of motivation. But we ended up going and I met like uh, Travis Walton one morning. He was having breakfast and um, I got to meet him and take a picture with him. And he's just like, I've grown up just being such a fan of him because he actually was on a flying saucer for five days and he's Mormon like, like my family. Yeah. So I feel like there's, there's something about the Mormon lineage. I don't know. There's something about being Mormon. Um, I can't put my finger on it, but it, just, there's a lot of sightings in Utah too. And, um, and I also just, I'll jump backwards. Another show that I just did, I just did a six six series i think it was five <laughs> five or six i'm losing track now but i did five weeks in a row with a fellow named ron johnson who lives in utah and he talked about a lot of personal experiences and and he grew up mormon so that show is one more connection to you know utah and idaho is borders utah so there's that population there of mormonism and the ufo contact mm-hmm um, but you know, it just it seems like religion does have paranormal roots, you know. Well, I mean, the Star of Bethlehem, you know, that's that's pretty paranormal when you get right down to it. Seeing a light in the sky. Mm-hmm. Hey, we're getting down to the final minutes here, and um, is there anything you want to say before we before we leave about your grandfather? Um. I I know he was with me the night I got through to coast to coast because the lights in my room were flickering and he's still with me. He he watches over me. That's great. Like the stories I've told, I just felt his love was so grand to be loved by my grandfather, and um, and the love I've gotten from my family too. Just when you love somebody, like it's unconditional, and I totally believe, you know, that he he had his experience for the human race so we could evolve from wherever we were with thinking about reality. But, um, you know, the world's changed so much. Well, yeah, it's been, it's been 60 was, what is it now? Like 70 plus years since his sighting. Yeah. 73 years. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and this is something that shows up within the, within the experiencers, especially is that people who have a close up UFO sighting, you know they're forced to re-examine reality. You know they're they're they have been confronted by something that they have been told does not exist, and they have the direct experience, and it forces them to rebuild their their concept of reality. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that's yeah. Our family has a deep love for animals, and the and the owl's name was Barney. Barney was the owl. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure his name was Barney. I thought my mom might have told you that, but we've <laughs> my family's been crazy about animals, so that's great. Good. Well, this has been a delight. But yeah, cool. All right, Mike. We'll have a good one. You too. Have a good night. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye. Now. As I said in the beginning, before the interview started, here is the full chapter from my 2018 book, Stories from the Messengers. This is an excerpt from the audiobook, which is available on audible.com. This excerpt was read by me, and I have to thank Kim Arnold, Chanel's mother, for a few long phone conversations that helped me enormously when I created this chapter. So, here goes. Please enjoy. Chapter 6 Kenneth Arnold and the Dawn of the Modern UFO Era The modern UFO era can be traced back to June 24, 1947, the day Kenneth Arnold saw something unusual in the sky while flying alone in his private plane. Although his wasn't the first sighting of its kind, it was the one that exploded onto the national stage, ushering in the flying saucer craze that forever changed the popular consciousness. And here's something delightful. Kenneth Arnold had a pet owl. Arnold's daughter Kim was driving at night with her older sister when they saw a young owl that had fallen from its nest. The little bird had an injured eye, so they took it to a veterinarian. Afterwards, they brought it home, and Kim put ointment on its eye each day for weeks until it recovered. Kim's father built a beautiful cage for the wounded bird. It was a young, great-horned owl, one of the largest species of owls in North America. As it grew, it got stronger and more difficult to deal with. Eventually, it became so large that it felt dangerous to handle, so they ended up donating the adult owl to the local zoo in Boise, Idaho. Looking back, Kim says she thought it was quite incredible that her father would allow her to keep such a wild creature, much less build a cage for it. She described his handiwork as a reflection of his loving character. The cage was something magnificent. Kenneth Arnold unwittingly coined the term flying saucer in 1947. He radioed a report from the cockpit to the tower that he'd seen nine silvery objects flying at tremendous speeds while piloting his small plane near Mount Rainier in the state of Washington. The airport staff contacted the local papers, so there were eager newsmen waiting when he landed. He described what he had seen to these reporters. Quote, they flew erratic, like a saucer if you skip it across water. The iconic words, flying saucer, ended up in the headlines And from that moment on, Kenneth Arnold became a reluctant celebrity. Curiously, he didn't report seeing anything shaped like a saucer. The craft he had seen were chevron, or crescent-shaped. Yet his description of their motion made the term flying saucer the catchphrase for the entire phenomenon. What seems peculiar is that in the follow-up media circus and public hysteria, flying saucers are exactly what people around the world began to see. Kenneth Arnold was the perfect UFO witness. He was, by all accounts, honest, trustworthy, and entirely believable. He had nothing to gain and everything to lose by coming forward with what he'd seen. In an era where the cowboy was our national icon, Arnold's home was a ranch in the dusty plains of Idaho. If a Hollywood director needed someone to play the part of a stoic citizen in a western town, casting Kenneth Arnold would be the perfect choice. He had a follow-up sighting just one month later, on June 29, 1947, over La Grande, Oregon. This involved a cluster of about 25 small, brass-colored craft seen while flying his plane. There was another UFO sighting in 1952, again from his plane. He saw two distinct craft flying below him. One was as solid as a Chevrolet, and the other was semi-transparent, like a jellyfish. 
He could look down on it from above and see the pine trees on the ground through the center of this object. Here's what Arnold said to Look Magazine in a special edition about UFOs. The impression I held after observing these strange objects a second time was that they were something alive rather than machines. A living organism of some type that apparently has the ability to change its density, similar to fish that are found in our oceans, yet without losing their apparent identity. Arnold was changed by what he had seen. No longer satisfied with the prosaic stance of the time, he was opened up to some of the more esoteric ideas about UFOs. This was a bold stance in an era dominated by nuts and bolts ideology. He wrote about his beliefs in the November 1962 issue of Flying Saucers. After some 14 years of extensive research, it is my conclusion that the so-called unidentified flying objects that have been seen in our atmosphere are not spaceships from another planet at all, but are groups and masses of living organisms that are as much a part of our atmosphere and space as the life we find in the depths of the ocean. The only major difference in these atmospheric organisms is that they have the natural ability to change their density at will. Arnold experienced something very strange during his initial sighting over Mount Rainier. He felt as if these craft had interacted with his consciousness. He never hinted about this psychic aspect at the time of the event, but he eventually spoke about it with journalist and researcher Bob Pratt. What follows is an excerpt from a 1978 interview. I think that this, the June 24, 1947 sighting, was the first indication that there was some intelligence somewhere that was able to read my mind. I think other pilots have felt the same way about it. It was a rather frightening experience due to the fact that when you actually felt inside that somehow your mind was being controlled or being read in some way by some unknown entities that were apparently making use of it. It didn't really make any sense. Telepathic communication is consistently reported by UFO witnesses and abductees, but mind control in relation to UFOs was unknown at that time. It's understandable that Arnold would hold back on this psychic aspect back in 1947. His story was already difficult to comprehend, and declaring that his mind was being controlled by UFOs would never have been believed. It was over 30 years later when he finally spoke about it during an interview. Over the decades, he had talked to a lot of other pilots who had seen UFOs, and he implied that many of them had also experienced direct mental telepathy. This level-headed man wasn't just seeing things flying in the sky. His life was plagued with even more strangeness. At the time of his 1947 sighting, Arnold had been searching for the wreckage of a large military transport aircraft. It had crashed the previous January on the glaciated flanks of Mount Rainier, presumably killing all 32 Marines on board. Arnold had his infamous sighting on June 24, 1947. The crashed aircraft was eventually found on July 24, and the memorial for the dead Marines was held on August 24. Three interconnected events each separated by exactly one month. This numerical coincidence took on a special meaning for Arnold. What began as a fascination with these types of synchronicities eventually became an obsession. He also claimed that the crashed transport aircraft was found on Mount Rainier essentially intact, but with the entire crew missing. He describes it as an irrational mystery. Arnold said, When the search team reached the fuselage, the fuselage was almost intact, and all the luggage of everyone was still on board, and their parachutes had never been used. There was no blood, no bones, and there were no bodies. I just thought it was a very unusual thing, and there was no way they could say the 32 Marines walked away from it. This plays out with an eerie similarity to the Mary Celeste, a British ship found empty of its crew in 1872. Arnold questioned the meaning of his role in these events, along with his other UFO sightings, and it frustrated him. He initially expected some explanation, but none ever emerged. The 1947 Maury Island incident was a UFO account every bit as important as Kenneth Arnold's sighting. 
This event took place on June 21st, just three days before his sighting at Mount Rainier, and less than 50 miles away. Multiple witnesses saw a donut-shaped craft supposedly eject molten aluminum, some of which was collected by witnesses at the site. Some researchers contend this was all an elaborate hoax, but there are details too bizarre to dismiss. Arnold became involved in this event when he was hired by Ray Palmer, editor of the pulp magazine Fate, to play the role of investigative reporter. Arnold soon found himself entangled in a perplexing cloak-and-dagger mystery with a cast of nefarious players and yet another military plane crash. On August 1, 1947, two officers died when their B-25 crashed, supposedly carrying the mysterious residue from the Maury Island UFO. Both officers had met with Arnold in the hours before the crash, and he was greatly disturbed by the news of their deaths. Two days later, on August 3rd, Kenneth Arnold's own plane crashed. He wrote, I reached an altitude which I would judge to be about 50 feet. My engine stopped cold. It was as if every piston had been frozen solid. It never even gave a dying bark. To take off and have an engine stop at that low altitude is probably the most dangerous thing that can happen in an airplane. His plane hit hard at the end of the runway but he managed to land it on all three points. He was unhurt but shaken. Shortly after, he found what caused his engine to stop. The fuel valve was shut off. Arnold wrote, I knew instantly that there was only one person who could have shut the fuel valve off, and that was myself. He speculated that he could have been influenced by some form of mind control, and this caused him to shut the fuel valve off before the flight. Arnold met the very mysterious Fred Crisman as part of his Maury Island investigations. This man claimed to have witnessed UFOs the day after the initial sighting. Crisman was later subpoenaed by New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison during his investigation of the JFK assassination. He was Garrison's key suspect for the trigger man on the grassy knoll. Some of the unusual aspects of Arnold's 1947 sighting impacted him deeply. He described a pulsating light emanating from the surface of the nine silvery craft, and he felt this matched the rhythmic beating of the human heart. This blue-white light was so bright that it lit up the interior of his cockpit, even though the objects were many miles away. He was cautious about what he said at the time, but the power of what he saw influenced his core beliefs. Arnold's daughter Kim said that after his 1947 sighting, her father spent the rest of his life standing by his story. He had a devout belief in God, and he felt that he had had these experiences for a divine purpose. She also said, My dad believed they were alive. They were not mechanical craft in any way, shape, or form. Kim has recently shared something that had long been a family secret. Shortly after the 1947 sighting, a glowing ball of light appeared in Arnold's home. It was first seen by one of his daughters in her room. Then it floated down the hall and appeared in his own bedroom. Arnold was so frightened that he fell to his knees and began reciting the Lord's Prayer. This wasn't his first experience of seeing a glowing orb. As a boy of seven, he and other witnesses had seen a globe of light in the room where the body of his deceased grandmother was lying in state. Kim Arnold spoke about how the beliefs of her father had been affected by his experiences. Near the end of his life, he believed that it was possible that the flying saucers were the connection between the living and the dead. She said his sightings changed his views of dying, that death was not an end, and that we lived on. In 1981, UFO journalist Gregory Long visited the 66-year-old Arnold at his home in Idaho to conduct an interview. As a way to express his exasperation with the narrow views of most researchers, Arnold handed Long a copy of the complete books of Charles Fort. He said, I was astounded when I read Fort's books. There were similarities between what I'd investigated and what Fort had collected. Publishing four books between 1919 and 1932, 
Charles Fort chronicled a wide range of extremely bizarre and unexplained phenomena, including odd things seen in the sky. Fort's books are dense reading, and his conclusions are well outside the conservative norms of both his time and ours. Journalist Gregory Long wrote, As Arnold spoke, he revealed an unyielding, critical attitude towards science that ignores ridicules or attempts to rationalize away the damned. This is Fort's term for anomalous data that does not fit established scientific views. This attitude is readily understandable given the treatment Arnold had received at the hands of the press and the skeptics. That Arnold would not only read but identify with an author like Fort says a lot about his outlook, not just on UFOs, but how it overlaps with other paranormal phenomena. Well known as a trustworthy man, Arnold was often approached by both military and commercial pilots. These men would share UFO sightings that they couldn't tell anyone else for fear of being grounded. These testimonies allowed him an insight into first-hand details that few researchers would have heard. He also had military intelligence come to his home with high-quality photographs of odd craft in the sky, asking if these matched what he had seen. He also felt strongly that he was being watched by the government, that his mail was being read, and his phone was being tapped. Upwards of 10,000 letters arrived at Arnold's home, many of them from UFO witnesses. His sudden fame made him the go-to person in this new domain. In the early days of his sightings, two military intelligence officers visited his home and looked through these letters. They were particularly interested in anything from religious groups and organizations. He was told that the government was aware of the dangers of pious fervor, and they didn't want anything like that to well up around the burgeoning UFO hysteria. Arnold said, More than anything else, governments are afraid of Joan of Arcs, religious saints, or phenomena that could cause their self-destruction. At the time, there was a real concern of mass panic overtaking the country. Arnold felt that it was this fear that shaped the official stance on UFOs. After his 1947 sighting, Arnold was interviewed often. He wrote a book, appeared in documentaries, and spoke publicly about his experiences. Before a presentation in Boise, he was approached by a team of military men. They spoke in threatening tones, telling him to stop talking publicly about his experiences. Then the presentation was suddenly canceled, and no one told him why. This was followed by a friend from town, driving him out to a lonely spot in the Idaho desert. This man then expressed the seriousness of that threat, including the cryptic remark that these men have killed their own to keep things secret. Chanel Chance, granddaughter of Arnold, felt that these shady run-ins created deep misgivings of the powers that be. As a young girl, she remembers her grandfather telling her, Never trust the government. Arnold was by every account an honest and decent man who never sought the attention thrust upon him. But there is so much more to his life story. His experiences are like a mirror, reflecting back the bizarre challenges within the overall phenomenon. What happened to him goes well beyond the initial event in 1947. He has spoken publicly of eight UFO sightings, which to me seems astounding. His story is a checklist of the same kind of high strangeness that is consistently reported by abductees. There is no way to know if Arnold ever had this kind of direct contact. All one can do is look at the long list of telling events that have intruded into his life. He described that some UFOs could read his mind and that he and his family had seen a floating orb in their home. He also claimed his phone was tapped and he was threatened by the military to keep quiet about what he knew. This is standard stuff straight out of the abduction literature. Here's another curious addition to Arnold's life. It seems that his wife had psychic skills, along with the capability to tap into past lives, her own as well as others. Her daughter Kim said of her mother, she had abilities of mental telepathy, and that kind of perplexed the family. Kim's daughter Chanel said, my grandmother was somewhat of a psychic medium and telepathic, and they both believed in reincarnation. So, reincarnation and telepathy 
were talked about openly in Kenneth Arnold's home. By the end of his life, Arnold came to see these experiences as something spiritual. As stated earlier, he was convinced that his many UFO sightings had happened for a reason, and that he had been chosen for some divine purpose. All these mysterious incidents were transformational, changing his perception of reality. He was fascinated with synchronicities, especially number patterns. He believed the UFOs were alive and that the phenomenon represented a connection between the living and the dead. He also felt strongly that he had been at the receiving end of mind control, both from UFOs as well as government secret keepers. This is bold stuff, going well beyond what conservative UFO researchers, past or present, would dare to whisper. The strange experiences and spiritual beliefs of Kenneth Arnold are eerily similar to what many UFO abductees report, enough that one has to wonder if he really was chosen for a divine purpose. Perhaps he was meant to play an important role for some elusive reason. All this, and a pet owl too. That was a full chapter from the book Stories from the Messengers. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.